1: the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Mie Wire. Mie is the founder of her eponymous hybrid RA based in Reston, Virginia, that manages $200 million for about 250 young professional families. What's unique about Mie, though, is how she's developed a referral engine around her work with Microsoft employees, hosting several unique and memorable client events throughout the year to instill a sense of community amongst her niche client base. And how that also ends up driving even more referrals from clients who are excited to share that they're part of MIA's community. In this episode, we talk in depth about how MIA has become the go-to benefits and equity compensation expert for Microsoft employees at their hub in Reston, and even gets to provide benefits training for their new hires who've recently graduated from college. How Mie's client challenges in finding the bandwidth to manage their nearly monthly Microsoft stock events has led her to make her own client deliverable a simple one-page financial planning summary that just lets clients know where they stand in relation to their goals and includes her planning recommendations, and why Mie structures those recommendations to be so detailed that clients could even implement themselves if they wanted, although most have still hired her to do it for them. We also talk about how Mie structures her fees starting with $300 an hour fee for creating an initial financial plan for clients and how she communicates the fees so they don't feel like they're on the clock during the process. Why Mie feels that structuring her business as a hybrid RA on the AUM model allows her to best serve her clients, even though less than 5% of her revenue is coming from commissions. And how Mie ensures that all client-initiated communication gets a prompt reply from her team by setting up a catch-all team email address that goes to everyone's inbox at once. And be certain to listen to the end where Mie shares the mindset shift early on in her career that helped her to stop worrying about trying to fit the mold of a typical financial advisor, the key insight around what her value was as an advisor that prompted her to outsource many of her firm's back office functions and spend more time on client-facing activities, and her ongoing recognition of and appreciation for how the hard work that she put in the early stage of building her practice has had a tremendous compounding effect that's now paying real dividends. And so, with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Mie Wire. Welcome, Mie Wire, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm I'm looking forward to today's discussion, and and w- one of the themes we've had on the podcast in 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 recent weeks and months is is all the different ways that. We find the clients that we end up focusing in and specializing in. Some some advisors, could, you know, start out from scratch. Like I got a vision of who I'm going to go after, and I'm going to go after them. And they they like define their niche and plow in from the start. A lot of us who've been doing this longer don't start that way. In fact, very few of us who've been doing this for a long time ever started that way. Because most of the way that we started was like, here's a phone book, <laughs> start calling people see who you can find to meet uh, if they can fog a mirror than their prospects and and so we like we start out really really general and broad with anybody we can possibly get and then over time we do or do not find our way into some sort of more focused set of clientele and so I know you've lived a version of that journey kind of having started out more broad and now having the the largest segment of your clients working at Microsoft and so I just I'm I'm excited to kind of talk about what that What that evolution and journey looks like in a business, an advisory firm of, well, starting out as so many of us starting out, figuring out how you have something more focused, building through referrals into a community that way, and you know all the other stuff you have to do in in growing and scaling the business along the way as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So I was just going to say to get us started, can you just share with us a little bit of your advisory firm as it exists today, and just paint the picture for us of of BAY financial advisory?
2: Sure. Sure. At this point, there are six of us and two of us, I have a business partner, Minor Carlick and she also is part owner of the firm. And she and I are the main advisors at this point. She's been with the firm for 11 years. And then the rest of the team mostly is helping us with you know client services and support and so on. There are Let's see, there's five of us who are local to the area. We have one team member who has always, for the most part, lived and worked uh, remotely from Arizona. And then pre-pandemic, the rest of us worked in our Reston, Virginia office but now that we're i guess mid pandemic hopefully towards the end of the pandemic we have another team member who started working from home remotely when the pandemic first happened and she actually really prefers it and so um obviously especially in our industry pretty much anything that you can do you can do virtually so i think she'll probably remain remain virtual and then there are four of us who mostly work in the office but we kind of take turns most of us work from from home, maybe one day a week. And I would say, you know, our client base is definitely, I don't know, I guess when I talk to other financial advisors, I think the biggest difference that that I see between our client base and a lot of other financial advisors' client bases is that our client base is very young. Most of our clients are probably between like 25 and, I mean, it's pretty broad, 25 and 55, but we have mostly working families. Like we don't have a huge, huge segment of clients who are already retired. And we have a big initiative, I guess. It, you know, I've always been very, very enthusiastic and motivated to work with younger clients just because, you know, I, I feel like what you hear so much as an advisor when clients come and see you is, oh, I wish we would have met you 10 years ago. I wish we would have met you 20 years ago. I wish we would have met you 30 years ago. So from day one, we've always had a big initiative where we tell our clients, look, you know, if you send your children in to work with us, we will do their financial plan. You know, normally we, we, Bill by the hour to do the initial plan. We'll do their financial plan for free if they're a client's child and, you know, m- most of our clients when their children get their first job, the first thing they do is they, you know, send them over to us and we Want to get them started on the right foot, and even though they aren't big dollar clients, you know we just feel like it's it's good practice. And of course, everyone gets older and makes more money and saves more money is the goal. So, so we consider it an investment, you know, in the future of our business. And then, so our our other than that, I would say our big focus is we're definitely planning focused. Every client that comes in as a new client, we do a financial plan upfront. These days, I feel like we have a lot more clients who are interested specifically in financial planning. We, we've been getting a lot of that the last maybe eighteen to twenty four months
1: because. Of- Uh, Sorry, just like getting more inquiries for financial planning, or is that tying to what's going on with the pandemic? Or you said, I guess 18, 24 months goes back a little bit further than that. Is that like a broader shift that you just feel like you're seeing that consumers are getting more aware of wanting a financial plan?
2: Yeah, I think, I feel like it's been more pronounced in more recently where, you know, I'm sure you can't be a financial these days, financial advisor these days and not notice that, you know the message i feel like that has been is being put out there especially to the younger generation is anybody with a phone and an app can be an investor and become a millionaire by trading on their phone so i feel like but i feel like even those investors get to a point where they realize and you know most people in the last year or so have done extremely well, regardless of how they're investing, just because the market has been very cooperative. But I feel like even those clients, especially if they're fairly, you know, in this area, we have lots of clients who are high earners and fairly affluent, even if they're pretty young, they sort of realize, okay, maybe they think they can do a great job trading stocks on their phone, but that doesn't really help them make decisions about, should I be doing my Roth 401k or pre-tax or, you know, Am I saving enough for my kids' college? Should I use a 529? Am I going to be able to retire at 55, or am I going to have to work till 65? So even, I think we have a larger number of clients in recent years coming to us saying, I feel like I'm doing a good job. I'm in quote unquote, investing my money, but I really don't have a plan. And I don't know if I'm doing things right. And so, whereas it used to be that the typical process, 95% of the time was they come in, we do the plan for them, and then we manage all of their assets. I feel like more recently we have a lot more clients where they come in we do the plan they pay us for the plan and maybe we invest their assets but maybe we don't. And and some of it is that a lot of our clients are younger and some of them just don't have a lot of assets to manage. And then frankly a lot of them especially in this area, you know, typical DC area family, you know, two spouses working, kids, parents like kids at home being schooled now because of the pandemic, right? They're like, I literally do not have the bandwidth or the time in my life to do this, even if I had the the desire or the knowledge. So we have a lot of clients who just, they're like, I need to offload this. You know, I need, like at Microsoft alone, their benefits are so complicated that between RSU's vesting, which is quarterly and ESPP, which is also quarterly, they have a stock event occurring two out of every three months. And that's not not even thinking about the 401k and the after tax and all the other stuff they have going on. So a lot of them are just like, look, I just need help with this. I don't have the bandwidth. I'm like, you know, I'm getting a thousand emails a day and I'm working 60 hours a week. And, you know, those are kind of our ideal our clients. You know, we like working with really smart people who who save well, they get it, they have a plan, we come up with a plan together, we all agree on it, but they want to sort of offload or outsource some of the day-to-day management because they, they don't have the desire or the time to, to do it on their own. So that's kind of our, you know, our bread and butter. So help
1: us understand kind of the scope of the overall business at this point. You'd mentioned six team members, but like how, how many clients are you serving and what is the business model look like in terms of are you... Assets under management, or charging planning fees, or or uh, doing commission based business. Like, h- how many clients are there, and then what does the business model look like?
2: So we work with about two hundred and fifty families, and basically the way it works is all of the clients are clients of the firm. Most of what we do is advisory. So I would say, as I mentioned, every new client that comes in, we always do a financial plan. We bill hourly for the plan, but at the end of the day, you know, you can only Onboarding new clients takes a lot of time and energy, and so you can only do it so quickly. So planning fees still represent a fairly small percentage of our overall revenue. Um, You know, probably 90% of it is from advisory fees from managing assets. We do... The only... Situations where we typically have any kind of commission based business are, you know, we live in Virginia. Virginia has a College America 529 plan, which is run by American funds, you know, which you can't do in an advisory type of model. So, in that situation, if we're managing a 529 for someone, we have that commission-based structure with American Funds. And then the second thing is, you know, from very early on when I got into the business, I had my insurance license. And there was a period of time where, you know, I know lots of advisors like to advocate for, you know, to be able to say fee only. But if we say fee only, then obviously we have to outsource, you know, certain things like the College of America, life insurance. And I just found that, you know, if I outsource my life insurance or long-term care insurance and other you know, insurance business to someone who sells life insurance or insurance for a living, well, guess what? They're going to sell insurance for a living, which may or may not line up with what I was recommending to the client. So, you know, in certain situations where the client has a need and we can, we can help fill it, we do also do life insurance and long-term care. We actually do a lot of long-term care, not because I like it. I mean, I, I you know, having long-term care insurance conversations is one of one of my least favorite things to do. But I have, I found over the years that if we weren't having that conversation with clients, nobody was having it with them, except maybe their captive insurance agent who is trying to make a commission by selling them a policy. But so, yeah, so that's also a very, I would say, small percentage of our, of our revenue from insurance-based products. But where we see a need or our client has a need, and it's something that we can help with, then we generally will, will do that as well. But I'd say 90% advisory at this point.
1: And and then what's the total AUM base of the firm if you're built mostly in an advisory context?
2: Um, it's about two hundred million.
1: Okay, so just sort of doing rough math, like about two hundred million, roughly two hundred and fifty families. So kind of that that average client is call it roughly eight hundred thousand dollars, obviously with some bands around that. But is that fair to think of in terms of who's the who's the typical household? Kind of lots of half a million to a million dollar house clients
2: but we have a pretty big range you know because as i said i guess i consider like kids of clients also part of that same client family but we have individuals who have very small accounts with us mostly you know children of of clients and then obviously we have a few outliers who have very large portfolios with us but yeah I, that's probably pretty close
1: so i'm i'm curious more about this model of how you're doing planning and how you're charging for plans that you said you you're charging like every client goes through a planning process. They're all billed separately for the planning. They're billed on an hourly basis. Can you can you share with us a little bit more just how that works? Like literally just we're gonna do a plan for you. And at the end, I'll I'll send you an itemized bill for X dollars an hour and and track how many hours we did. Do you set a a flat, flat planning fee up front? Or, or are you just literally billing by the hour and we'll see what it comes up to?
2: Yep, I mean that's we give people a quote, and the biggest difference I think in the quotes that we give to people are obviously if it's a single person, usually it's it's going to be less complex and less take less time. If it's a Microsoft person, it's going to take less time because we don't have to do any research, you know, on the 401k funds or the HSA, or you know, that's all stuff that we already already know. But basically, when in, when we have a process that we go through for every client, and it's on our website, but. In the initial meeting, we explain to them, okay, this is how we work. For every new client that comes in, you know, our big thing is we're planners first, right? So we want to make sure that you have a plan, you know where you're going, you know how to get there. Everybody's on the same page. So when we do the initial plan, we bill by the hour for the time it takes us to do the plan. I mean, one thing that we did from the beginning, because I always hated it where, you know, you send an email to your attorney or you're on the phone for five minutes and a week later you get a bill. Like I never wanted to have that kind of feel for my clients because I always wanted them to feel like if they're in a meeting with me, like we have an intake meeting where we ask them a lot of questions and gather information about their goals and all of that. I never wanted them to have that sort of clock ticking over their head where they're like, well, I better get through this quickly because I'm going to get a bill for it. So I always tell them, you know, when we have our initial meeting, look, we don't bill for emails or for meetings or for phone calls. We basically just track the time that we spend working on your actual plan. We did find that Because we have more clients now than we used to who just do planning and, you know, planning takes time, even though we have team members who will do like the data entry into money guide and that sort of thing. So it's not like the planners in the firm are doing all of the legwork. It's still a fairly time-intensive process. So... We did increase our fees a little bit and we, you know, we used to kind of loosey goosey kind of track our time. And I think we were kind of consistently underbilling people. So now that we have more clients who come in who do the planning process or may or may not have us manage assets, we definitely have been a lot more stringent about making sure we actually do bill them for the time that we spend because it is so labor intensive and we are not necessarily as often as we used to going to be managing assets for those same clients. So yeah, we basically track our time that we spend while we we're working on you know their money guide we use money guide for planning when we're working on the recommendations when we're doing research and then when we do the delivery meeting which is when we go through money guide with them we give them all of our recommendations we give them an invoice and it's just broken down into like two parts you know time that we spent on the software part of it with money guide and all of that. And then a, a separate item for the time that we spent doing research and you know putting together recommendations, that kind of thing. And then they just pay us, you know, we have a system through our, our broker dealer and they pay us online for the planning. And then we tell them at the very beginning, you know, down the road, when we decide after the, after the delivery meeting, the next meeting that we have is called the regroup meeting. And that's where we basically say, okay, how are we going to go forward? And in that meeting, you know, we tell clients at the beginning. If you just want to use us for planning services and come back, you know, once a year and we look at your 401k and rerun your numbers and so on, we'll just bill you. In that case, we will bill you for the meeting time as well as the, the back time that we spend preparing for your meetings and so on. If you have assets that you want us to manage, then we're gonna to switch to an advisory type of situation. You know, we tell them about our advisory fee. And then we typically in that situation are not gonna be hourly billing on a going forward basis.
1: So accuracy, what are you doing to like, just to literally track time when you're doing this? So I know this is a challenge for some firms of just remembering to track it or where you track it. Or I've seen some from start trying to get like the the software, the lawyers and accountants use for their time tracking. Oh. I mean, ours is much that less in
2: man when we sit down to start work like when well, we sit down and log into money guide and and go through it we just i mean usually we would take a sticky we put down okay money guide it's you know 420 this is when we started working on it and then we finished working on it this time we just track the actual minutes
1: why the breakout between? I think you said you you sort of invoiced in two segments, like time that you were in the software and then time that you were doing the other research and putting together recommendations. I, I'm just curious, where did that come from? Why why two lines and not just not just one big number or or like four lines because you could itemize it more?
2: We have had that invoicing system literally for years, and if I'm trying to think back to you, sort of honestly, I probably just came up with it at the beginning. I felt like just having one category was too vague, right? Like if I was a client, I'm just like, okay, well, so they spent three hours on my plan. I don't know. It feels a little bit like we're obscuring information somehow. So I feel like more detailed is better. Like, you know, usually when you get an invoice from your attorney, it says, okay, you know, answered client emails, this many minutes, research this or you know, worked with a colleague on this, and it's fairly detailed. Ours is not that detailed, but I feel like having it split out at least the client kind of gets an idea that oh, okay, that software program that they went through with us, they spent this much time, you know, inputting data and working with that software program, and then they spent this much time, you know, researching our investments and our asset allocation, putting together the recommendations or whatever research we had to do. I, th- I sort of, I think I initially thought that that was a good, like in my mind, a way of how I split out the time working on it. So that's probably how I came up with it. Have we revisited it recently? Not at all. So well,
1: if, if it's working and they're not complaining, it's working and they're not complaining.
2: Yeah, this is true. This is true. It's and, not broken.
1: And is there like a standard rate that you're billing at X dollars an hour?
2: Yeah, we bill at $300 an hour. And we usually quote people, you know, three to four hours for a plan.
1: Uh, so that that's typical, like th- three to four hours for gathering and well, I guess so. What is that including the meetings of gathering the data and then presenting, or that's just the
2: no? So it's just that's just the actual like you know, working in money guide, putting together recommendations, that kind of stuff. So that's what I'm saying. We don't, you know, I, I mean, I have considered it more recently like, should we start billing for because I'm not the one, it's usually our team members that are like emailing the client to make sure we have all the data. And we have another team member who does the initial like data entry into money guide. Um, and we don't bill for a lot of that time, but again, you know. Now that we have more people coming to us for planning, I have been spending a lot of time seriously thinking about kind of adding in billing for more of that time that are because it's time that d- the team spends that they're not spending doing other things, right? So and
1: and do you bill for for just like the the data gathering meeting up front, the presentation meeting at the end, or only for the time between the meetings?
2: No, so we don't so for the first part we don't bill for any of the actual meetings. If we if the client decides they're just going to use us for financial planning services and we're not managing assets for them, then after the initial deliverable when they pay us for that initial plan, then we start billing for the meetings.
1: Okay, so so either way sort of the initial planning process you're going to bill for the in between time but not the actual meeting time if they want more planning advice engagements after your initial process. Then we're actually billing by the meeting.
2: Exactly. Okay.
1: Okay. And and I guess that was under the auspices that at least historically they were usually becoming clients by the end of the they were becoming ongoing advisory clients by the end of the meetings anyways, and so you weren't as concerned about billing for the meetings.
2: Exactly. Exactly. That's how it kind of started out.
1: But the more that they're being planning, only the more that you're looking at billing for all the time increments.
2: Right. Because we're not getting compensated any other way. So yeah.
1: And and then how do you actually handle billing? You said you, you've got an online system?
2: Yeah. Advisor Group, who's our broker-dealer owner, has, has a system called Equipped. And so as a courtesy, we email – nowadays, because it's all virtual – we email like a PDF of the invoice to the client, and we just tell them, this is for your records. And then we go into the system Equipped, and it electronically sends them a financial planning agreement that they can electronically sign. And then it sends them an electronic – Invoice so they can pay it online. They can pay it through an ACH from an account if they had one, or they can use a credit card or e-check or whatever. So,
1: okay, okay, and that and that's all part of the the broker-dealer system. That's part of Advisor Group system that they make available to. you.
2: Yes, yes. It used to be people who would just give us checks.
1: So, share with us a little bit more what your financial planning process looks like. Like, if I'm a, a client, I say, you know, me, I want to come on board and and work with you. It's go time. Let's go. Like. What happens? What's the actual process?
2: So the actual process is if we, you know, all mutually agree, yes, we're going to do a plan and work together. Then the first thing that happens is Shippy, who's on our team, she's the one that's in Arizona. She sends them an email with a list of the information that we want to have. You know, your typical copy of last year's tax return, your most recent pay stub, your 401k statement, yada, yada. We use a secure, smart encrypted, secure email. And so most clients just reply all to the the emails and pdf things and send them over to us you know some some clients will use like a secure dropbox or something instead but so the clients will get us the information and then once we have, and usually should be in our office, kind of keeps track of like what information do we have and are we missing anything and that sort of thing. And then it used to be that what we would do is we would wait until we had all their information and then we would send the calendar link for them to schedule their intake meeting. Our calendar has been so booked up lately that w- what we've been doing now is we've been sending the link when we send the list and telling them, go ahead and pick a date. And that gives them time in the, in the meantime to send us the information.
1: And I guess the... The nice extension of that is they they kind of create their own deadline to make sure they get their stuff in because they just scheduled a meeting with you.
2: Yep. And if they don't if we don't have the information by the, you know, the week before the meeting, we just reschedule the meeting. So but usually, yeah, usually they know okay, I have to have the information to them by this date, which is great. So and then so once we have all their data, then we have the intake meeting. And the intake meeting is when, you know, we ask all the questions that are not in their financial information. So that's when we, you know, have those conversations with them about when do you want to stop working and how much of college do you want to fund? And, you know, if it's between working longer or paying less for college, which would you rather do? And, you know, all that kind of soft data. So intake meetings I love because it's that's the fun part, right, where you get to really engage with your clients and find out what they really want. And people are so different. That's what I think makes working in this field so so interesting is to see how, how, how different people are as far as the way they think and how they think about money and what they want to do in life and all that. And then the deliverables in the delivery meeting for us are, we go through money guide with them and then we give them, basically, I try to we try to fit everything onto one page because our whole mantra is simplify, right? Clients don't come to us because they want 20 pages worth of stuff they're never going to look at. So we do like a one-page summary that has the top part is our conclusions where we're like, okay, you're in fantastic shape or we're like, your goals are completely... <laughs> not realistic and you're never going to reach them or whatever, you know, we kind of give them what our basic conclusions are. And then the second part of it is our specific recommendation. So I always tell people like my goal for the delivery meeting is I want you to have, you know, you hear all the time as an advisor, like, how are we doing? Are we okay? Are we on track? Are we not? You know? So we always tell people the the two goals of the delivery meeting are, we want you to have a really good feel for where, where you stand or how, you know, how you're doing, are your goals realistic? And then we want you to have a very specific List of action items that you can take, or we can take with you, or we can take for you, to put you in a better position, get you where you want to go, etc. So then, Miner and I get together, and we go through Money Guide together, and then we go through all the conclusions and the recommendations together. It's funny we do this together in the office, and the other ladies in the office always call it the the Lucy and Ricky show. <laughs> Because they listen to us going back and forth like it's a collaborative process, right? And we're always trying to figure out like good recommendations and best solutions. Well, he really wants to retire early. What if we did this? And what it's anyway, so it's the fun part, right? It's the fun part of financial planning if you're one of us financial planning nerd people. And then we have the delivery meeting. So in the delivery meeting, we, you know, nowadays it's all virtual. So we log in, we share screen, we go through money guide with them. We always go through like, You know, if you're familiar with Money Guide, we go through current scenario, recommended scenario, and then we we go through that one pager with them. Okay, this is what we came up with. This is, you know, your goals are in line, your goals are out of line, realistic, not realistic. You have a lot of work to do. You have no work to do. And then we go through all the recommendations. And I always tell people, I'm like, look, you're paying us to give you objective financial advice. The recommendations, the goal for us of the recommendations at the delivery meeting is that they should be detailed enough that if you are one of those do it yourself first, who's going to implement everything yourself, that they're detailed enough that you can implement them yourself. So we get all the way into, you know, you should be putting 12% of your pay into the after-tax option with the in-plan Roth conversion. You should have 15% in the International Value Fund and 10% in this fund, you know, and we try to cover- pretty much everything that money guide covers you know we do obviously investments and savings and retirement and college but we also do you know insurance if it's a family situation which most of our clients are estate planning long term care insurance you know we try to cover sort of all of the taxes tax planning but anyway so we go through the recommendations and then we usually tell them at the end of the delivery meeting cuz it's a lot of information we give them the login to to money guide so they can log in on their own and then we email them all of the the recommendations that we put together and that we go through in the delivery meeting. And then we usually try to schedule ahead of time now the regroup meeting to be about a week or not more than about two weeks after the delivering meeting. And the regroup meeting is where we all get back together and say, okay, let's review everything. Let's go through each of the recommendations one by one and kind of figure out the way forward. So some clients come back to the regroup meeting they're like, oh, like I, re- you know, reallocated my 401k and I changed this and I did that, but I need some help here or there. You know, and then there are other clients that come back to the regroup meeting and they're like, oh, everything sounds fantastic. Can you just do it all for us? You know, so the regroup meeting is where we kind of figure out, okay, how is our relationship gonna gonna progress forward? How much of it do you want us to do for you or with you? Or just kind of have an eye over your shoulder while you do it yourself or what have you. So so that's kind of our whole initial process. And that's the delivery meeting is when we give them the invoice.
1: So I, I a couple of questions here. The 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 delivery process itself, just I'm I'm struck that you said you're you're building plans in Money Guide Pro, but you're not like you're not producing any of the output from Money Guide Pro, if I'm understanding this correctly. Like you're not you're not printing Money Guide plans or the output sheets or any of that. The the actual client interaction with the money guide output is the screen share looking at the results not here's a here's a printout or a PDF right
2: yeah and I would say I think the output like the reports and we produce a report and we upload it and we save it but we don't in most cases it depends on the client I mean we do have a lot of very kind of engine I'm gonna I'm gonna stereotype here but you know techie engineer types who want all the granular detail so in those cases we'll especially go through the, in the money guide, you know, are the reports that actually show the, the sort of number charts every year and the flow of dollars, which I think if you're interested in that kind of thing is really helpful. But I think what we found is that again, going back to clients come to us because they want simpler lives and they want less work. And so I have found that giving them a deliverable. And, you know, those money guide reports are some of them are like 100 pages. Um, If you're a financial advisor, it's fantastic and you can look at it for hours and you know, it's fascinating. But if you're a client who just wants to get stuff done and wants to be on track financially and make smart decisions, it's not necessarily something that is going to help you. So, you know, we take it case by case, but for the most part... Yeah, we go through the money guide program with them, give them the login so that they can you know, go into the client side of it. But we most of the time do not go through the reports and most of the time don't send them the reports. They're available on the portal. But just because we find that, again, so many times we've had clients who came to us and said, oh, yeah, we paid somebody and they did a plan for us 10 years ago and they gave us this big book and we never looked at it again. Or, you know, they gave us this 50 page thing and it we didn't understand it. You know, I, I remember younger being, you know, earlier in my career, kind of hearing that a lot. And and I just kind of got to that point where I realized, you know, people don't want like a big fat booklet or, you know, 20 or 50 pages of information. They want somebody to be like, hey, here's what you need to do. Here's why. And either I can help you do it. I can do it for you. Or I can give you some instructions and you can do it yourself. Like they just want you, they come to you because they want it easy. They don't come to you because they want more information that they have to sort through.
1: But I I find it striking as well that I mean to take the other extreme of this, right? I I could also say great, well then just like literally just produce the one page output of the conclusions and the recommendations and let's just, you know, let's just tell them the punchline and 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 move on from there. But I'm I'm struck that like you are still showing money guide output. I I guess if only for the you do still have to prove it to them that you that you did the work and did the analysis, even if even if they're not going to take it with them and do anything with it, you got to at least prove it in the meeting so that when you give them the one pager at the end, they can actually trust that you did do your homework.
2: And that's why I think I like going through Money Guide with them, because I kind of like them to see, like we tell them when we're when the delivery room, we're like, this is the exercise that we go through, like as advisors, to kind of come up with these recommendations. So we want them to see, like you said, because sometimes You know, sometimes we go into a delivery meeting and tell clients, hey, you guys are doing a fantastic job. You can, I mean, I'm oversimplifying, but, you know, you can make these tweaks or rearrange this stuff and you're going to be great. And then we have other delivery meetings. Like we had one this week where we were like, you know, the husband wanted to retire at 65 and we were like, look, we tried every way to the moon and back and we don't see any possible way that you can retire at 65 outside of winning the lottery. But, you know, they can't just take that on faith. They have to actually see like, why is that?
1: You want to blow up someone's someone's goal and dream? Like you, you better come with some proof. Yes,
2: you better have something to back it up, or they're going to be pissed off that you, you know, are telling them they can't retire. So yeah, so we go through the exercise with them, and you know, sometimes I feel a little bad. Like those people, we did their current scenario, and I think their probability of success was like four percent. And we were like, okay, this is how we knew that's this is not going to work. And th- But then we could go through the recommended scenario and say, okay, you know, if you make this change, this is what happens. And if you make this change, this is what happens. And some of our younger clients, like they're 30 some years old, we like, look, this is what happens if you do your 401k pre-tax for your whole life and max it out. And then here's what happens if you did Roth instead. And they're like, wow, you know, so, so I definitely believe in the value of going through the program with them, because I think it really does help them understand why we made those recommendations. But most of our clients don't actually go back in and log into MoneyGuide afterwards. Some of them do, but vast majority, because you know we get an email when they log in, vast majority never go back to it. But they come back to that regroup meeting, and they come back to meetings after it, with that one pager printed out like in their hands. Okay, here's our to-do list. Like they refer back to it, they check stuff off on it. Like they actually, like that's their Bible so to speak. You know, and that's kind of why I always did that way cuz I was like, I just want they just want a checklist, they want a to-do list. Yes, they need to know that you did the work to come up with those recommendations, but once they have that faith that these these work and there was work done and these are good recommendations, they just need the to-do list, you know. And that's what they're going to go back and refer to. And most of them aren't going to go back and log in or read the 20-page report or whatever.
1: And I guess on the flip side for that for that subset of Stereotyping a little, like for that subset of engineering clients who really actually do want to tinker with all that stuff, like it's cool. Here's your money guy login. Like, have have fun engineering yourself. Um, let us know if you got questions.
2: You know, we get emails. Oh, your client saved this this favorite scenario, and your client. You know, I think <laughs> the most of the clients don't know that we get an email every time they log in. We have one guy not making this up logs in. Every single night, and I think if he knew that we get an email every time he logs in, he would be mortified. And I think he needs some kind of professional help outside of what we do. But yeah, <laughs>
1: so. But I but I think it's an interesting thing as well because I I know for a subset of advisors, like what you just described, would be anxiety-producing. Like uh, like if the clients logging in that much on their own and doing all their own analysis, do they even still need us? Like, isn't it my job to? To run the software and do this stuff for them, and so I'm I'm struck that you know I, I feel like you sort of boiled that down to its essence. Like, yeah, still a client and still paying me for the 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 planning fees, even though they're logging in for all the stuff. Because like you know they don't need us to run the calculator. Or at least that client apparently like doesn't need us to run the calculator. He can log in and run the calculator every night if he wants. Like they're paying us for the one page plan of conclusions and our professional recommendations about what they're supposed to do. And then help me understand more about this regroup meeting. Like that is not something I often hear in in the process for firms that you you get through your plan delivery meeting and then have a separate regroup meeting. It sounds like not not long thereafter, like a week or two thereafter.
2: I mean regroup. I tell clients in the initial meeting. I think the regroup meeting is one of the most important meetings that we have because that's where we figure out how we're going to work together going forward. And, you know, after the, in the delivery meeting, it's so, you're giving them so much information. Most of the time you're telling them things they didn't know, right? Like, oh, you could actually retire at 55, never mind 60, or no, you can't retire at 65. You're going to have to work until you're 67 or whatever. And then we're, we, we're going through money guide and then we're giving them the conclusions and the recommendations. And, and it's, it's a lot of information. So we always tell them at the end of the delivery meeting, you know, Take the information, let it sink in, talk it over amongst yourselves, and then we're going to get together for the regroup. And the the whole idea of the regroup is to say, okay, what is the path forward? And like I said, some people come back to the regroup and they're like so jazzed up and excited. They're like, oh, we did, you know, items one, two, and three, you know, we have some questions here and can, you know, we might want you to take care of this for us and... And then other clients come back to regroup and they're like, okay, you know, we talked everything over and we're on board and everything sounds great. We just really need you guys to do the implementation part of it for us. So in regroup, we we sit down and we go through those recommendations one by one and we say, okay, you need to reallocate your 401k. And some clients are like, oh, I did that. And their clients are like, I have no idea how to do this. You know, so we get on Teams and we share a screen and they log in and we show them how to do it and we do it together. And, you know, so so we go through each recommendation one by one and that's where we figure out, okay, you know, you have this IRA or this 529 and they say, oh yeah, can you guys, you know, we know that you guys said it was all concentrated in US large cap, you know, and it needs to be diversified better. Can you guys manage it for us on your platform and we'll pay you an advisory fee? Or, hey, can you give us some more specific allocations so we can do it ourselves? Or, you know, the recurring meeting is where we really figure out like how we're going to work together going forward. And that's why I think it's such a, a critical meaning because that's sort of how we started the definition of, of our, our advisory relationship.
1: Well, I'm just, I'm struck as well. I, I think for a lot of firms, you know, the traditional process was, you know, we, we, we do the plan presentation it has a bunch of recommendations and then like right there at the end, it's, so would you like to work together with me to to implement all this stuff going forward? And, and like that, You know that moment of decision of whether our paths are twined together going forward or not comes at the end of that plan delivery meeting, and so I'm I'm struck that you have sort of separated that out. I mean, I I, most firms I see, I feel like go one of two ways. It's you know sort of the moment of truth is at the end of that meeting, and you know we're going to decide here whether you want to work together with me to, to. implement these recommendations or not or for advisors that say like oh, that's too much of a hard close they do a you know go home and think about it and then and then let me know in the next few days and they kind of leave it open ended which i think probably is sometimes too open ended and 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 you know only the most motivated clients manage to come back together after that and say yes we'll move forward that i think you have a really interesting structure to say look they're going to be an information overload by the end of that you may or may not have rocked their world about what they thought their reality was going to be coming to being than what it actually is. Whether it's they can retire sooner than they thought or later than they thought. So give them some time before they have to make a decision, but don't leave it open ended. Literally say like, "We're going to have a regroup meeting where we're going to come together and decide like what comes next." And if we're just wrapping up the relationship and you've got your list of things you're going to move forward on your own, more power to you. If you want us to help implement, we'll. Talk about what that looks like. If you're still not sure, we'll get to talk about that in the regroup meeting. But you've kind of literally created a conscious space for when they come back to make that decision and that they're going to come back and make that decision, that they don't have to make it on the spot, but that decision is getting made.
2: Yeah. And it's interesting. I was just thinking about it because we've had a couple of clients in the last couple of months where where they have kind of wanted indicated that they wanted us to manage their assets, but we weren't really they weren't a good fit and we we knew they wouldn't be good clients, you know, high maintenance or out of whack expectations or whatever. And in the regroup meeting, we basically were saying, hey, you know, we believe that you should continue to manage your own assets, but we still have the regroup meeting because that conversation needs to be had. It's interesting, just in the last couple months, it's funny because I was telling you that, you know, these days I feel like we have more people who don't have us manage their assets, but we also have more people whose assets we don't want to manage. Partly because of the way things have been all over the last year or two, like we, you know, one of the people that we flat out, I guess, two of them actually, where we flat out basically had to say we 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 don't want to manage your assets or we aren't willing to manage your assets, were it's because they they've been doing kind of a lot of this individual stock trading, and you know, oh, I made four thousand percent on Tesla last year, and like we felt like. The way that they thought investing should be done and what their expectations were based on just their experience, maybe in the last year or so, made them not good candidates for our, you know, we take a passive approach. It's it's the tortoise, not the hare. And we were like, we're asking for trouble to try to manage these people's assets with the way that they think, you know, investment management is supposed to go. But obviously, we still have a regroup meeting and we go through all the recommendations and say, you know. We're always here. If you want to come back to us for planning work, or you want us to rerun your plan or what have you, we're happy to do that and and bill you by the hour. But we're not going to manage assets for you. But the, the regroup meeting is the is part of the the process, and every client has that meeting. And I think just to leave it open ended, I feels feels unfinished to me somehow.
1: Interesting, and I, and I do like your I guess that point as well that you know that the challenges of younger clients who have literally only invested in pick stocks in a bull market unless they, you know, manage to try to get their GameStop right at the peak that right that for a certain su- subset of of younger clients in particular like you you may have to wait until they have whenever that first blow up event is that's going to eventually come and and humble them a little bit as as the market pretty much does to everyone at some point and then they may say okay I've I've given second thought about you know, my personal investing genius and my ability to generate 4000% per year annually compounding returns but if that's literally the only thing they've ever done like you're not likely to convince them that it's not going to work cuz it's literally literally only ever worked for them
2: right 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 yeah we had one guy who wanted to like have us manage the cash portion and then he was going to try to you know we had recommended a certain split and he's like well the stocks i'm managing over here will be part of that stuff and we were like no it, it, it doesn't work that way and we said you know it that would be kind of like the too many chefs in the kitchen kind of analogy like it, it's it's really stressful for everyone in the kitchen, and the end result's usually not very good. So we were like, you know, for and we tried to explain to him. For him, it was more of a personality thing. It, he just was too interested in having his own hands in the pot. And we're like, that's fine, you know. I mean, it's money. It's a very personal thing. And some people are not going to be comfortable, kind of saying, you know what, I'm going to offload that or I'm going to outsource that part of my life. And and we get that. And you know, our solution is not the best solution for everyone.
1: And and so then talk to us a bit about the the investment management process for clients that do decide to come on board and work with you. Like how does that work? What do you do?
2: So we work with, you know, Buckingham Strategic Partners, which was with us, we were originally with Loring Ward for like 15-16 years.
1: Was with Loring Ward, sucked up into Buckingham Strategic Partners with their acquisition 2 or 3 years ago, okay?
2: So most almost all of our assets are On the Buckingham slash Loring Ward platform. And so, you know, it's a very passive, hyper-diversified asset class strategy, regular rebalancing, and we basically outsource all of the administrative and the, you know, the billing and the rebalancing and everything to to Buckingham. So, you know, we have sort of one-offs here and there, like 529 accounts and some emergency fund type of service type of accounts that we set up for people. But other than that, it's mostly all on the Buckingham platform.
1: And so, you said you were with i guess buckingham then loring ward for almost 16 years so by by tamp standards that was actually pretty early to be to be into tamp world back in the you know the mid 2000s so like what led you down that road to to decide to go that route and not not build portfolios yourself or... You
2: know what did it for me? So when I first came in the industry, it's kind of what you were talking about. People, clients came to us or we went out and found them at that time to basically, quote, sell them mutual funds, right? And as you said, it was building portfolios. It was kind of doing research on Morningstar and trying to pick like funds that had good track records with good managers, even though everybody knows past performance is not indicative of future results. And, you know, we spent a lot of time trying to pick and choose fund... Funds and fund managers. And then, you know, when things don't go well, then you're defending performance or lack thereof. And that for me was a challenge because, of course, as time went on and the internet became more prominent, you know, clients had access to the same information that I had access to for doing the research. So I was like, where am I providing a value, right? This is before we did a lot of really comprehensive planning. So clients were coming to us for investments. And I was like, well, where's my value in providing investments to clients? That was the first thing. And then the second thing was, in 2000, 2001, 2002, you know, the market was tanking basically every year, 3 years in a row. And the, the the clients that I had that were nearing retirement, I was I was a little bit panicky about, okay, I don't really have You know, a system in place to help clients who were nearing retirement. You know, I knew they needed more diversification. I needed knew they needed some sort of a more systematic program that incorporated things like rebalancing and income portfolios. And but I just was basically picking mutual funds. And and after going through those three years where the market was basically, you know, declining in double digits every year, multiple years in a row, I I was, you know, at a loss that there's there's got to be some better way to do this. And I was on an advisory council for for Woodbury, my broker dealer at the time. I don't even remember if they were Woodbury at that time. We went through a bunch of iterations. But and some of the guys I was on the council with had worked with Loring Ward for years, and they were like, oh, you've, you know, you've got to talk to these people. They have a great, you know, program and system. And that's kind of how I got introduced to it. But once I, you know, it's kind of like the whole drinking the Kool-Aid thing. Once you kind of get the program and the system and kind of the research behind it and and it, it all makes sense. But I started out by just moving my clients who are kind of nearing retirement over to that platform because I thought, oh, this makes a lot of sense for those people. And then when the market started to do really well, my main motivation at that time was to help protect them from some of the downside that they had experienced during 2000, 2001, 2002. But then when the market, even when the market was doing well, a lot of my portfolios that I had with Lowing Word were actually outperforming the ones that I didn't have, you know, for younger clients, and of course, when you're working with asset class portfolios, you don't ever really have to have a conversation about defending underperformance or, or lack of performance because you're invested in, in in the market. So, you know, you're kind of invested in your benchmark, so you don't have to spend time trying to defend, you know, management or performance. So, anyway, over time, I just sort of gradually ended up transitioning almost all of my assets over to that platform. After that, so that's kind of how it all got started.
1: And and do you ever look in today's technology-driven world of saying, hey, I think I can just buy some rebalancing software and do this myself internally? Do you ever look at no. bringing it back in?
2: <laughs> nope. I mean, I have colleagues. Obviously, there's people in our industry that do it, right? And then I see you know, what they go through every quarter, billing, rebalancing, all the work. Even if you're using quote-unquote software, for me anyway, I, I have no desire to... I have no desire to take that stuff in-house. I mean, I'm just, I'm not, I'm a control freak about many things, but I want to maximize at the end of the day, the time that I can spend doing what I love, which is working with clients. So because people ask me the same thing, they're like, why are you with a broker deal? Why aren't you just an independent RIA? But in my mind, that's just more work, you know, compliance, all of those things. And I, I just really want to, I've, you know, Woodwork has been very, very good to me for more than 30 years and they, pretty much let me, you know, run my business and do my thing. But offload some of the, you know, compliance and the back office and all of that stuff. And for me working with Buckingham is the same kind of thing. They take a lot of that sort of administrivia that you can outsource off of my plate and I, you know, even today with a, a team of 6, you know, managing people is not my forte and and I don't enjoy it at all. You know, I just want people to who are very self-motivated that can do their own thing that don't need somebody looking over their shoulder. So the more things that I can sort of Get off the plate of what we do every day so we can really focus on clients and client experience and anything that I feel like is getting us closer to that is something that, that I'm going to want to do
1: interesting so i'm i'm struck even that you to me like you you framed very similarly the the value proposition of a tamp on the investment side and the value proposition of a broker dealer on the on the advisory firm side of of both of these are effectively outsourcing solutions for you like the the tamp outsources the investment team and the broker dealer is basically outsourcing the compliance team
2: yep i mean in a nutshell i would have to agree with that yes
1: and and so your team then functionally internally the the six of you are client facing and planning work and just the 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 meetings and support requests that come in for clients
2: yep yeah and even the time that i end up having to spend on compliance stuff just irritates me because i'm like i shouldn't have to spend time doing this you know
1: so what it, what are the roles of the six people on the team then like who who does what just given Given the amount of stuff that's outsourced and external, like what's right. still internal that you you have so, a
2: team So, Miner and I are, are pretty much spending all of our time doing planning work and client meetings. We pretty much do the same thing. The only difference between my role and her role is I also have to do some of the running the business stuff that she doesn't have to do. And then... Everybody else is slightly nuanced, slightly differently. So Shippy, who is the one who always works remotely from Arizona, she does all of the scheduling and she does all of the paperwork, which now, of course, is electronic, but it's still we still call it paperwork. So, And everyone does some client service. I mean, the way we have it set up, we have a team email. Every email that comes in from a client goes to the whole team. So that way, you know, whoever is best equipped to handle it or who is free at that moment can handle it and clients aren't kind of waiting around.
1: And literally, like, they, they email, like, Team at
2: yep, team at meawirelc.com. And clients are trained from day one, you always email the team and they'll and they'll write in the email, hi team, you know, hey team, you know, that's how because that's always how we've worked. And you know, there are days where minor and I are in meetings all day and don't have 10 minutes to look at email, but that way a client's not sitting around waiting for a reply to an email, you know,
1: interesting. And so, like, I'm just curious, literally, how you manage that internally, like some kind of giant. Shared mailbox?
2: Nope, no. Smarsh sets it up so that every email that goes to the team email, I get it in my inbox. Minor gets it in her inbox. Deb gets it in her inbox. And then we have a, we use Signal. Um, we used to use WhatsApp, but now we use Signal. And so we have this thread that kind of runs all day. It's our office thread. And so, like, Deb might say, Oh, hey, I have, you know, Joe Blow's email. She'll message. And then everybody else is like, Got it, or Thanks, or whatever. You know, most of the time we know, like if an email comes in and it's about a 401k, then usually it's a minor thing. A minor will say, oh, I got that one. Or, you know, certain, certain if it's about a, a form, then Shippy might take care of it. But usually we'll, we're kind of message on Signal, like, hey, I got this one or I got that email or whatever. But a lot of times, Minor and I are, aren't even around. And so, you know, Deb and Ange and, and Shippy and Adeline will know that they need to take care of the emails because we're in meetings or whatever.
1: And I'm just, I'm struck as well that... You know, there, there's a certain I don't know. I guess re- relief for the team that you don't have to you don't have to worry about whether you individually are getting back to that message right away, or like whether you're around at your desk to get back to it because something might be bouncing back and forth the client that they're going to be emailing into team at, and so you've got teammates who can help make sure that this gets covered promptly in a timely manner.
2: I feel like it's probably the single best thing I ever did for the for the business because think about it, like you know, my big thing is travel, right? Obviously not the last 12 months, but, you know, if I'm going off to Europe for two weeks, I'll put an out of office on, you know, in case somebody forgets or someone happens to send an email into mine, but I really just don't sweat it because I know that everything is getting covered while I'm gone, you know? And same thing, like you said, if I'm in meetings all day or I'm out sick or I get in a car accident or I get hit by a bus, I mean, there's not really much that's going to go, not that it's not going to go wrong, but that's going to go unanswered anyway. And, you know, if clients consistently, like sometimes clients will forget and they'll send an email to me. And when I reply, I always CC the team and I just always put in the email, Hey, make sure you always CC the team. That way, if I'm stuck in a meeting, you won't be waiting around for somebody to get back to you. You know, and clients realize they get much better service because of it. Yeah. I mean,
1: you just have to point out like, I'm, this is just literally so that you get a response faster. And then they, and then they do, and then they do like, no offense, right? Just we're, we're caught up in meetings for a while. At some point they realize like, oh, I sent an email to Mie and CC'd the team and team replied before Mie. Like, it doesn't take that happening very often before. They're like, I'm just going to email team because that's yes. who always gets back to me. It's fast.
2: fabulous. And it's great because I always wanted to train them. You know, I kind of, I, I tell people this funny story all the time, but it's so true. It, I had the light bulb moment when I was pregnant with my daughter, who was my first child, and I went in to see my OB. And every time I went in for like a checkup before I had this baby, they would have me meet with a different doctor who wasn't my OB, and they would say to me, "They're like, look, we don't know which doctor is going to be on call when you give birth, and we don't, you know, we want you to be comfortable with all of the doctors, and we want them to all know you and your situation, so that when the time comes, you're taken care of." And I was like, you know what? That's genius. Like, I don't want to be on vacation having my team or anyone in my office emailing me like oh hey this came up or this person had a question like that's not my goal right i don't want to be irreplaceable i want to be absolutely replaceable so uh, i started sort of trying to quote train the clients from that point to be comfortable you know dealing with miner or you know dealing with deb or dealing with shippy so that th- you know, the, our clients don't care if they have a question, you know, they don't care if I reply or if Deb replies or, you know, and that's kind of the goal is to make it a whole team thing so that you have that flexibility to be in a meeting all day or to take off on vacation for two weeks and you don't ever have to worry about it. And that's, like I said, that's probably one of the, the best things that I that I ever did. And I know a lot of people like the idea that they're irreplaceable, but I want to be replaceable. I want to be able to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to go live in Italy for three months and take some time off and not have to worry about it.
1: Well, and. I think you make a really a really interesting point in in how you frame that that i I think for a lot of advisors there's, there's sort of this feeling of like individualized personalized service which means you mr and mrs client have debbie and debbie will personally attend to all of your needs or concerns and whenever you've got a concern just just email debbie and you're gonna have this personal relationship with our client service associate that will support you and like we we sort of we have to put a, like a person on the pedestal as this point of personal connection to the client where I think some firms would maybe have a gut response of like emailing TMAT seems very uh, like depersonalized and not as connected. But, you know, as you frame it from the other end, like A, a lot of that is an expectations thing, right? If if you set the expectation, you're going to have this one person. Well, then yes, people expect the one person. When you set the expectation. Hey, I want to make sure that you get the fastest, quickest turnaround, no matter what. And the way that we do that is we've got an entire team that knows your situation is up to speed, communicates internally, so that you've always got someone who gets you the answer you need the fastest. People adapt to that pretty quickly. And and if at the end of the day, like you know, if if the you know if the doctor's practice can rotate the doctors because they're not even sure who's going to deliver your baby and get you comfortable with that, then clients are going to be okay with a team of client service associates.
2: Absolutely. And and the thing is, everybody does because of, we use Redtail, because of Redtail, and we are su- super, super detailed about putting very, very detailed notes about everything in Redtail. I feel like everybody on our team does know all of our clients really well. and And I'm glad that you brought up that analogy about the whole doctor's office thing, because I have always really tried to run our practice like a professional services firm. So for example like no one on our no one on our team is allowed to have email on their phone like i don't i leave the office i don't get client email anymore and before the pandemic nobody took their laptops home we locked them up in the office and left them there when we went when we went home on you know on the weekends and on the weekdays and even if like i log into my email and i'm doing some work on the weekend if i'm replying to a client's email i schedule it so it goes out on monday morning and i'm like we're you know, we're not heart surgeons, right? We're professionals and there's no financial emergency. So, you know, work-life balance has always been really, really important for me and, I want, and, and for my team. So I'm like, you know, I don't want you guys working when you're not at home. Well, these days it's a little different, but like, I don't want you working outside of office hours. I don't want you getting emails on your phone from clients. I don't want you emailing to clients, like if it was your lawyer or your doctor and you sent them an email on Sunday afternoon at three, are you going to expect a response? Like, I don't think, cause I have heard colleagues and, and other advisors be like, oh, you know, my clients have my cell phone number and they can call me anytime and this and that. And I'm like, that's, that's in their mind. Like, that's how they provide great service. And that probably works for them Fantastically. But for me, I want to have really great service, really personal service. I want to have a team that is super responsive and knows my clients really well. But we're still at the end of the day, a professional firm. And we're not going to reply to their emails at nine o'clock at night or Saturday afternoon at two. But that doesn't mean we're any less. I think it makes us more professional. It doesn't make us any less good or personal. It just means that, you know, we're professionals who have families and kids and lives outside of work. And, you know, it's we're still going to provide a great service and be really personal responsive. We're just not going to do it, you know, Saturday morning at 10 o'clock.
1: And, and so then the, the one piece I'm wondering, particularly with this, you know, outsourced TAMP structure as well, how does the fee structure work for you? What is the, what's the AUM fee and how do you handle a TAMP fee? Like your fee plus the TAMP fee or, or you pay, you, you charge a full fee and then you pay the TAMP out of your fee. Like what 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 do fees look like and how do you position it with the client?
2: So I don't actually. I the way that you can do it, I guess, with Buckingham is you can do you can have it so that you have your fee and then there's the Tamp fee. And even like Advisor Group has their own advisory platform, and that's how their platform works too. But I found out a long time ago because it used to be that I would do the math, and if it was cheaper for the client to do it, you know, with the two separate fees because they're at a certain asset level, then I would explain that to them and do it that way, blah, 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 blah. But what I found out at the end of the day is that A, clients don't mind paying for good service, first of all. And second of all, they don't like feeling that they're being nickel and dimed. And having multiple fees makes clients feel like they're being charged more. You know, Perception-wise, they don't like it. So most of the time, we do it where we charge one fee and the TAMP gets paid out of that, just because again, our mantra is simple. And even in the case where, you know, in the past where I've had clients paying two fees because it was cheaper, I spent a lot of time explaining to them why they were paying two fees and that it really was cheaper. And again, they didn't feel like it was cheaper. So, you know, most of the time we, we try to go with the, the least expensive, but also the simplest fee structure. And in most cases, that means the client is paying one advisory fee and then we're paying out of that.
1: And what is a typical AUM fee for your firm?
2: Typically we do up to the first million we do 1.2% and then 1 to 5 we do 1% and then over 5 we do 0.75. That's our typical structure.
1: Talk to us now about like where do clients come from? Where where has it come from that you built 250 families and and 200 million of of assets our management in the in the business?
2: I mean honestly these days I feel like they're just crawling out of the woodwork. I don't know if everybody's Having this phenomenon, but you know, I always track like how many new contacts do we have, and our average rate for the last couple of years is it's normally about 36 a year, so that's about on average three new people reaching out to us a month. And since I think maybe about December of last year, November, December of last year, we're literally running at like double that rate, it's almost two a week, and I don't. I'm like, where, where are these people coming from? And some of them were even people that came to us like a couple of years ago and did an initial meeting and then we just never heard from them again. And now all of a sudden they're like, you know, there's always that group at the beginning of January, like, oh, one of my New Year's resolutions, I'm going to get my money in order to so get a bunch of new people at the beginning of the year. But we get a, a decent number. People just call us or email us. A lot of them are Microsoft people and they'll say, oh, you know, I just started. Everybody said I need to, you know, get in touch with your team or colleague at work. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So then, take us back to the early days, because obviously our re- referrals flow a little bit more once we have a base of clients to refer us, and we've been doing this for a while and gotten known in our communities. Like, how did you get clients going in the in the first year, in the early years when you were getting started?
2: It's interesting when I first started with Woodbury. I was with a, like a small MGA that was called DFC, Diversified Financial Concepts, which ended up being bought by Hartford, which was our um, which owned Woodbury at the time. This is a long, long, long way back. But they trained us literally from day one to ask for referrals. But it was the kind of thing where it was like, okay, you finish the meeting with the client and you get out a piece of paper and you ask for like 20 names. Like that's how I was trained from day one.
1: Okay. So asking for referrals, but a a pretty... Pretty direct referrals. and strong yes. way to ask yes. for referrals. Not like people emailing you because they
2: heard that you were great, but that you actually said, "Hey, is there anybody that you know that could benefit from my services?" Kind of, and then thing. and
1: then you actually slide the paper and pencil, like you
2: write like, down, like, down names and phone numbers. Yes, this was before. This is in the days before we could email people. Yeah, and I mean, so I ha- it's always been referral based from day one. I used to have to really, literally ask for referrals, which we never do anymore. It just kind of happens. But it's that's how the business was for me from day one was, was referrals.
1: And so how did this whole Microsoft focus come about?
2: It was, that was a random thing, actually. We had a client many years ago whose husband, she worked at a defense contractor and her husband worked at Microsoft and he was our first Microsoft client. And fortunately for us, he's one of those people, you know, you have people that are like total cheerleaders for you. And he just became one of those people and I didn't know it at the time, but he's you know Microsoft's a huge company, but in the local kind of rest in office or whatever, he's very well respected. And one of I think actually the first person he referred us to was a colleague of his at Microsoft who is even more well respected, like very very well respected at Microsoft. And he became a client of ours, and it was one of those things where he referred a lot of people. He's referred many Microsoft people and many non-Microsoft people. I mean, random things. He went and bought a motorcycle and somehow got into a conversation with the the owner of the motorcycle dealership about financial planning. That guy that owns the dealership has been a client of ours for like five or six years now. So, this guy has referred us to all kinds of different people. He is
1: a very passionate referrer. That's- that's some impressive prospecting. Right,
2: right? Like some guy like calls us and is like, "Oh, hey, I sold a motorcycle to a guy who said you're a great financial planner and we really need a financial planner." Talk about random, right? <laughs> you're like, so Really?
1: Um okay. <laughs> he
2: is a really he's a brilliant guy and again, very well respected at Microsoft. And so when he would Tell people at Microsoft to come and see us, literally they would come, they would contact us and be like, Well, Steven says that you guys are really good. So it's kind of like, where do I sign? I mean, it was, you know, it was that kind of referral. And that's kind of how it got started. And then over time, obviously it just kind of grew. And then we became very, very familiar with all of the, the benefits and the 401k and all of that at Microsoft. And then one of our clients ended up being One of the people who runs the training program for the new hires programs at Microsoft, like they have a new class that comes in every year from college, which is now called like the Aspire Group or something. And she would have us come in and do a presentation every year for the new class about the 401k and how does it work. Because even a humongous company like Microsoft doesn't do a very good job of, you know, sitting new people down and explaining the benefits and the HSA and the ESP and the RSUs and, you know, all of those things. So she started having us come and do presentation every year. And those clients are mostly really young, don't have a lot of assets. But so I don't know, we just over the years kind of developed a reputation, I think, especially in the rest of the office among Microsoft people that, hey, if you need help, especially, you know, you want to work with someone who really understands what's going on at work and your benefits, and that can also help you with your financial planning in general, then, you know, it's a good place to go.
1: Yeah, it's it's a striking thing to me. Our, our, we often talk in the industry about building referrals usually comes from one of two places, either we get client referrals, right? We work with clients who who give us referrals, or we have uh, so-called centers of influence, right? Like the key key influencer people who can you know, sort of drive and refer a disproportionate number of clients our direction, which historically was in in roles like uh, accountants and attorneys and and people who themselves see a lot of clients and might and might generate cross referral relationships. But to to me, you're you're. Story makes an interesting point that you know not not every COI has to be a an attorney or an accountant. Like it can be a really influential person in a particular company who ends up opening the door for you for more opportunities at that company, which then leads to more opportunities, which then leads to more opportunities, and then lo and behold, like that's a thing in the plurality of your clients or Microsoft employees.
2: Right, it kind of becomes its its own thing, and you know to your point when you talk about COIs it's funny cuz i have never had great success with getting you know clients referred to me by like attorneys and accountants and things like that it's just and i have ones that i work with and i send them plenty of clients but i i have never had a huge huge amount of of referrals coming back my way from that but i think like you said a big part of what we have at microsoft started with one or two people and now it has its own life but it definitely had its origins in just a couple of people who were just big advocates who really sent a lot of people our way and kind of got the whole thing started.
1: And so what is asking for referrals look like for you at this point? You know, you'd said like you, you got trained in the appreciated, appreciated working with you. Would love to work with some of your friends and family slides over the piece of paper. If you could just list your friends and family here. Oh, and make sure you put their phone numbers. I don't forget the area code, that whole thing we did so long ago in the dark days you know if if you've sort of been steeped in this world of asking for referrals like what does that look like for you now
2: i mean we don't ask anymore we we don't say anything and like they're just i mean it's crazy right i mean it used to be a thing when we first started with the microsoft thing we had a dinner every year for our microsoft clients and it was kind of like a reunion for them because a lot of them work on client sites, so they don't see each other that often. But obviously most of them know each other because they've all been referred by each other. So it was kind of nice at our Microsoft dinner every year. It was kind of like a big reunion for a lot of them. They'd be like, oh, hey, haven't seen you in ages. And, you know, I used to make, like, I want people to know that we, really enjoy working with clients like them because obviously you want to replicate your best clients. And our Microsoft clients are clearly some of our best clients, you know, intelligent people, high earners, very busy. Like it's a good client profile for us. And we offer a lot of value because we know their stuff really well. So I used to make jokes like at the dinner when I, you know, get up at the beginning and just thank everybody for coming and all that. And I would make a joke about, okay, you know, we've, we filled the room at the at the restaurant because you know our dinner would be sometimes be like 40 or 50 people and i would make jokes like okay our goal is to you know have to fill up the entire restaurant so i think i always not so much anymore because now we don't see people in person as often but i always tried to make it a point to make sure that those clients knew that we wanted more clients like them i think when you get into a situation when you have a really good niche and you know that market really well you know, you don't you don't have to ask anymore because we don't ever ask anymore. But we get people contacting us every week saying, "Hey, you know, we were told we should come see you, or you know, we're looking for a financial advisor. Can you help you're the, us?" You're and, the
1: person. We heard you're the person because when when you're the person in the in the community, just you're you're the person.
2: Yeah, and you know, it doesn't even have to be like a Microsoft thing. I mean, you know, the clients who contact us who are not Microsoft people are just, you know, hey, my brother said you guys are great, and I need a financial advisor, so can you help us out? Or our friends, or whomever you know, once you have that, just like you said, once you have that reputation, then I guess it just gets easier. I don't know. It's, it's kind of crazy. I mean, I remember talking to somebody the other day about just the whole career path and the career path these days is completely different than the career path was like, you know, when I first got in the business, but it's just amazing to me how hard you have to work at certain things at the beginning and then how you don't really have to later. And it's such a, it's such a stark contrast, you know?
1: It's one of the things we've always observed and like even we see every time we do some of our kitsis research on this is now' I was saying all the other factors out there of the things that drive advisor success and how some end out a, a, a little bit faster to the success pace than others like the single number one determinant of of advisor income is number of years being an advisor like literally just time in the time in the business is like literally mathematically, the number one most predictive thing of of advisor income because we just, you know, expertise accumulates and compounds, relationships accumulate and compound, reputation accumulates and compounds, and assets accumulate and compound. Just like all of these things add up that when you've been doing it long enough with enough time, at some point a lot of outbound efforts turn very inbound and a lot of growth starts compounding with bigger numbers because that's how compounding works. And all of a sudden the results become very outsized in the out years. I'm sure you've talked to plenty of advisors yourself over the years who are who are not seeing the flow and pace of referrals that you are of like what is so different about what's going on there. Cause we all say we give great personalized, customized, individualized advice to our clients and we have great service. Like we all say these things, not everybody's getting referrals the way that you're getting referrals. What's different?
2: I feel like for a lot of our clients, they feel like they're part of a group, like part of a, like a special group. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like that belonging thing. And I think part of that is client service, part of it's client experience. We, not so much this last year, but we do tons of client events, usually like eight to 12 a year where they most you know 90% of it is just purely social you know we do a cherry blossom picnic every year where we charter buses and get bento box lunches and bus everybody down to the tidal basin to have a picnic and eat sushi under the cherry blossoms and we do you know pumpkin picking at great country farms out out in bloomont and we do wine tastings and just fun st- a lot of our clients have kids so we do a lot of family stuff but i think that besides just great client service i think clients feeling like they're part of something is is part of it you know and i think when people feel like they have some kind of experience or some part part of a group that they're in and they they think it's a great thing they want to share it and i think that's what makes people enthusiastic about you know anytime you have a great experience at a restaurant or whatever and and you want other people to have that same feeling or that same experience then you're gonna tell them about it I think it's that's it's that same sort of like hey this is something really cool and we're part of it or we get to have part of this experience or you know some of our clients have gotten to know each other at our client events you know
1: because you're actually doing them regularly enough that it's it's literally like a regular community gathering like oh, when, we have when you're people coming together who email monthly, us.
2: Yeah and they're like oh wait we haven't got the invitation to the cherry blossom picnic yet like when is it you know like and, yeah so i think that you know i think that's that's a part of it and it's not something that's really easy to put your finger on but i think i think i think that and then combined with i'm very much one of those people who figured out i mean it took me probably 10 or 15 years but i kind of figured out somewhere along the way that people work with you because they like you and you don't have to be like the quote-unquote typical financial advisor. You don't have to be a certain way that you think people perceive that you need to be. And I think if you just are yourself and your own personality, assuming you have a decent personality, then people are going to like you for that. And I think that one thing that our team does really well is that we really show to our clients that we really care. Like we really, really honestly care about our clients and we'll give advice that's completely financially going to not be in our best interest. But obviously, if we believe that it's in the client's best interest for whatever reason, like I think clients get a really good sense for that we really care about them in so many different ways. Like we show it in many, many different ways. And and I think that that goes a long way towards you know making clients very likely to refer us because I think they feel that from the beginning and they're like, these people really want to take care of us and they really care about us. And that's, again, it's a very kind of loosey-goosey kind of thing, but it, it's a feeling that people have. And I think that's what kind of keeps them here and makes them more likely to send other people to us.
1: Well, and I'm struck as well because for a lot of advisors I know, particularly I think ones that have sort of a, a community of clients they serve, right? Like a a niche like yours where the clients may may know each other as well or or may not or may or may not want to get to know each other as well because they've already got these other overlaps that I feel like sometimes there's a fear of will it be awkward if I mix all these clients together and they 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 all know each other and now they'll know that they're all my clients as well and that we sort of share this thing in common. And so just I'm I'm struck that 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 doesn't seem to be well A, that doesn't seem to be a concern for you. If anything it, it actually sounds like the opposite that that's kind of an asset and a benefit that you're bringing together all these Microsoft employees who are your clients and they're all going to see that you're the, that that they're your clients and that they know each other and that they have this overlap and like that's that's not a problem or a negative that's 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 part of it that builds the community.
2: Oh no, I think it's an absolute positive. Obviously, we never share any information, but I think for our clients, are, are they're kind of like, oh hey, didn't know you guys worked with Mia's team, and they're they're all excited. Like I feel like it's a, a definite plus. Like I think they and the, I think the clients that we had that are at Microsoft. Like people that come and see us, they'll be like, "Oh yeah, they were like they've been telling us for years that we needed to come and see you, and you know, asking us why we weren't already seeing you." And this, like, you know, I think that that they see it as a positive, and we see it as a positive for sure.
1: Interesting. So you know, for for all of us who are feeling anxious, like uh, about that, I guess that 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 may be in our heads, or we we need to we need to get over that.
2: I think so. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it's absolutely a positive because I think. I mean, you want your clients to be so, so excited and enthusiastic about your team and what you provide that they want they want everybody to know and they want everybody else to have it too. Do you know what I mean? It's like if you go you go to an amazing restaurant and you get the best service ever and it's the best food ever. You kind of go tell, oh my gosh, have you guys ever been to this restaurant? It's amazing, and not only was the food great, but they did this and that. And you kind of like you want other people to share it. And so I think that's how we want our clients to view their experience with us, where they're like, oh, it's amazing. Like they make my life so much better. I'm so glad I found them. And I want you to have the same great thing that I have. And then everybody's, you know, part of this community. Oh, we all work with Mie Wire's team. Like it's fantastic. And, you know, one big happy family.
1: Well, because that's that's part of the thing, right? You know, if if you've got a good thing and other people aren't part of it, we I frankly like we want to share it. And like it's not that I share it because I want to help, you know, Mia's firm grow. Like, I want to share it because it's a cool thing. I want to be the one that's you know, known for having found the cool thing. Like I, I tell my friends because I found the cool thing, not because I'm trying to help you, although I'm in the process, I'm going to help you.
2: Right. but And it's because they want to help their friends and their colleagues, not because they're trying to help our firm. It's like, oh, Mie's team has done so many great things for my financial life. I want my friends and colleagues and family to have the same benefit. Like That's how I feel like it goes and should go in their head.
1: So what surprised you the most about building an advisory firm over over your career?
2: What surprised me the most? I think the first thing is kind of what we just talked about, how after a certain period of time, it's not that you don't have to put the effort in cuz absolutely you work hard every day, but the things that were the hardest for you way back when, like it you don't even think about them anymore. And I feel like it's it reverses itself. Like at the beginning of my career, I worked so hard and made so little money, <laughs> you know what I mean. And I still work hard, but it's so different now. You know the things that stress me out it, it, before. It was like, "Where's my next dollar? My next client going to come from?" And now it's like, "Okay, how do I, how do I make sure I ha- we have the bandwidth on the team to handle all the work that's coming in?" Like it's so it's such a different place to be. And the mm-hmm. thing that stressed you out the most, trying to find clients, is now something that you don't even have to think about. They just come like that. Always. Like, that never ceases to surprise me. And I remember I used to have conversations about it where I was like, you know, sometimes I would feel guilty, like, oh, it's almost like, not like it's too easy, but it is kind of too easy in a way. And then I have to sort of remind myself, okay, there were many, many years where I was working, you know, weekends, nights, driving in people's houses, doing whatever, literally, to make you know less than twenty thousand dollars a year when I first started in my career, so it's not like I didn't put in the the, the work and the energy and the effort and the whatever at the beginning. But it, it does always kind of amaze me how, like you said, just by kind of being there and doing it, it just gets easier and easier. So that definitely doesn't go by unnoticed.
1: So I guess just the reminder, knows for everyone that's in that earlier stage, like when you when you stick with it, it like it it does get easier, right? The the whole nature of compounding is it never looks like it's going anywhere when you're early in the compounding phase because those compounding elements are so, so small early on. But at the later stages of compounding, like big numbers get bigger really quickly.
2: Yeah. And in an amazing way, like never ceases to amaze me.
1: So, what was the low point for you through this journey?
2: I don't know that there's a single low point. I think to this day, what I struggle with the most is like managing the team. Like for me, like for my personality, even though, I mean, I I have amazing team members and I love them so much. And I'm so like, I always feel so lucky to have them. I still struggle with like, you know, managing people, like staff, team is not my forte. And even even to this day is something that I really struggle with. And I, and I think that's always been, you know, there are so many days where I'm like, I just want to do my work. I just want to work with my clients or answer my emails or whatever and and always, you know, training and you know hiring new people and succession planning and just all of those things that come with running a business and managing a team are will always be difficult for me. And I think that's never going to change, you know
1: but I guess that that's part of the the appeal for you and everything from what a broker dealer platform provides to what a what a tamp provides it's 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 not literally the like in-source versus outsource is it more cost effective to hire and train the staff versus having it done externally it's it's my practice got bigger so there needs to be more people doing more things i just don't want to hire them and manage them and train them <laughs> so y'all 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 deal with this and so As you look back, like what do you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you from 20 something years ago when you were getting started?
2: Two, I think two things. I think one is the point that I made a few minutes ago about, you know, when I came in the industry, it was 30 some years ago. You know, it's still a very male dominated industry, but at that point, I would go to broker dealer conferences and I was like 21 years old female in a room of like 850 plus white males. You know, Woodbury is a Midwest firm. So, very stark kind of stereotypes, but I tried really hard at the beginning to, quote, like, fit the fit the stereotype. And it was difficult because I was, you know, in my 20s, and a lot of the cl- prospective clients I was talking to were like, my kids are older than you are, which was true. They were, right? So, it took me a long time to figure out that I should just be myself, right? Just be true to yourself, show your true colors. Don't try to be like stuffy and professional or talk the talk and walk the walk. Just be yourself. And if clients in my mind can see and feel that you really care and that, you know, you're, you're doing good work and that you're a trustworthy person, which is something that comes through in your personality, then that's what, that's what's important. And clients work with you because they like you, and it's for who you are. It's not for who you think you should be or who you're trying to be. So I think if I could have figured that out faster, (laughs) I think that would have been better. I wouldn't have wasted a lot of time trying to be something I wasn't. Oh, and then the second thing was I used to take for every client that that left or somebody who didn't use my services or you know whatever the case was, I used to take it really personally. And now I I understand so much better that you know money is not, there's nothing logical about people's relationship with money, right? It's all about emotion. And it's all about how you grew up and what happened to you in your childhood and your relationship with money. And it's, it's complicated and it's personal and it's an emotional. And now if it doesn't work out with a client or somebody decides not to work with our firm, or we end up, you know, firing a client or whatever the case is, like, I never take it personally anymore. And I, you know, if, if it doesn't work out and a client decides to leave for some reason, I always tell them, look, you need to do what you believe is in your best interest. And, you know, we're not going to be the right fit for everyone. And I need to, you know, it's 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 very freeing to kind of upfront acknowledge that and be like, you know what, we're not going to be the right solution for everyone. And that's okay. And we're going to choose to say no to some clients and some clients are going to choose to say no to us. And that's good, right? That's all good because life is too short to work with people who aren't a good fit or that cause you stress or whatever, work with people that you enjoy who see a benefit from what you do and who value it. And I think I think a, a lot of us as advisors struggle with that because you want to feel like, oh, we're so great and our services are great and our products are great and our client service is great and everybody should want to work with us, but it, it doesn't really work that way. And you know what? That That's okay. And I think there's something very liberating about, about that.
1: So any any advice you would give to younger or newer advisors coming into the business today about how they can get get started on a better foot?
2: I think I think what I would probably say is that given the way the industry's going, you know, obviously I think it, it makes sense to focus on planning and and really dive deep into providing value in the areas that you can provide value. And Don't waste a lot of time and energy. You know, like clearly we outsource most of our actual investment management because that's an area where we feel like, okay, we can outsource it at a good price. It's a great thing for our clients and it frees us up to do the things that our clients are paying us to do. And I think that's an important thing to figure out. I feel like a lot of advisors who struggle these days are struggling because they're putting themselves out there as investment managers. And I don't think there's a ton of value for clients in that. And I think that's going to continue to be the trend. So I would say planning first. And then I think... Because I think for me, what has worked so well for us is is really having that great client experience and that community of clients. I think if you can try to build that, and, and again, I remember struggling readings over and over again as a young advisor. You have to have a niche and you have to narrow it down and always having that fear. Well, am I going to exclude people or am I going to have less clients because they think i only work with this niche and all those kind of things that always run through your head? But then when you actually get there and you have a niche and you realize, wow, people are just drawn to you like a magnet because now you are the person for that niche. And it doesn't mean that people that aren't in that niche aren't going to come to you. It's just going to give you something extra. I think getting there faster and building that that sense of community or that being part of something special around that can be super valuable. And I think a lot of people miss that. And I think it's a much slower road if you don't have that.
1: So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the the word success means very different things to different people, as sometimes different things to us as we go through our own stages of life. And so you know, as someone who's built what I think I want to objectively call a very successful advisory firm with you know several hundred clients and several hundred million dollars under management, how do you define success for yourself at this point?
2: Uh, I would say two things. One is I have always really enjoyed working with clients and so – kind of waking up. I mean, I love what I do and I get up in the morning and I'm excited to go to work and I love my clients and I love my team members. And I think for me, part of success is still really enjoying what I do. And I think, you know, when the day comes that I'm not enjoying it anymore, it means it's time for me to go. <laughs> so having that and, and also having a what I consider to be a really great, like work-life balance, you know, I, raised a family with two kids and did the whole thing all while building a firm and was able to do it. And I don't, I don't feel like, you know, everybody has bad days, but I don't feel like I work harder or have more stress than someone who does something in a different kind of career than I do. And and I feel like I was able to do, build a firm because it's my firm and, you know, I'm the one who kind of structured it in a way that worked for me and that worked for my life. And when my my kids were young, I worked from home and, you know, did my client meetings around my schedule and that kind of thing. I feel like... And to this day, you know, having a good work-life balance. I mean, when things get busy, you do extra work. But for the most part, I feel like, you know, like I said, I'm not, I'm not working like some of my Microsoft clients. I look at how, you know, they're kind of working nine o'clock at night or weekends or whatever. And most of the time I'm I'm not. You know, I'm choosing when I'm working and not when I'm not working, I'm not working. So that to me is is part of my kind of success definition. And then I also remember when my when I was much earlier in my career, and I think I maybe only had one or maybe two. People on my team. When I first started, you know, I didn't have like good salaries and a 401k with profit sharing and health insurance for my staff. And I remember setting a goal at that time. And I was like, I want to get to, you know, a million dollars in revenue because I feel like when I have a million dollars in revenue, I can have a nice office space. I can have good health insurance for my team members. I can have a good retirement plan with benefits. And I felt like I could have a quote, like legitimate business that I could build with. Team members, and that was a goal that I had, and I feel like getting to that was a for me was you know where I feel like okay, this is a legitimate business, and I have good benefits and a good structure, and it's a company where people would want to come and come and work. That was a big deal to me. I didn't want to be like you know the advisor with an assistant kind of thing. Like that wasn't my goal. And I want the firm to live on. I mean, I have a great succession plan in place. I have no doubt. I have we have tons of clients who are in their 20s and 30s. I have no doubt that when I'm long gone, the firm will still be here and will still continue on for you know, hopefully generations after I'm gone. And that was also, that was a big, a big goal for me. And having put that into place and having great confidence that the firm will continue after I'm gone is, is another thing that I feel, I feel good about.
1: Very cool. Very cool. Well, well, thank you, Mie, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: Well, thanks for having me. Want
0: even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor?